Discipleship is more than words. Discipleship is more than words. It's a commitment to relationships. I want to tell you, first of all, we're in the Reformed tradition. Calvin was a great scholar. We have great confessions, and it's really easy for Presbyterians to get really heady, okay? And to concentrate on being sure we've got our doctrine right, we've got our expressions right, we've got our words right, okay? Nothing wrong with that, but that's only the first step. That's only the first step. The real business is to make relationships. So I want you to think about this. How easy was it to all of you who had children to tell your children to not do something or do something? How easy was it to be in the kind of relationship with them that they would actually do what you asked? (laughs) So really, the word part is the easy part. The relationship part is the time-consuming, difficult, frustrating, hard part. And that's where the rubber meets the road because it takes time. And I'm a person who is always overscheduled, always overscheduled. And just making time for people is really hard for me. It's really hard for me. And so making time, that's what we have to do. Now... The second thing, which we're going to talk about a lot, is most people do not share their faith for the simple reason is they're scared because they don't know what to do. They're not qualified. I've never been to the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. I've never been to Union Theological Seminary. I've never taken a class on evangelism. I don't know what to do. Well, I guarantee you, on that morning in Jerusalem, When Jesus looked at 12 fishermen, tax collectors, and other 'er ne'er-do-wells and said, go into all the world and make disciples, they were aware that they were not qualified. And they were right. (laughs) And they were right. They were not qualified. They were just willing. Okay? And so we do not have to be qualified. There's no qualification you need to make disciples. You don't need to go to a disciple-making class. It's nice if you do, but you don't need to do that. I've known many people who didn't hardly know anything that were good disciple-makers. Lots of your grandmothers were that way, weren't they? <laughs> weren't they? They never had to, went to school. They didn't have a seminary degree. They may not have had a lot of Bible knowledge, but they believed in God. They loved people, and they were willing to share that love. That's all you need. And finally, putting up with spiritual immaturity. So here's one where those of us who have type A personalities, that would be me, have a great problem. I had a a lawyer, a boss one time, who said, the reason why type A persons die young is because they have to deal with type B personalities. (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that, I think, as a type A personality. But the hardest thing to do is to remember that new disciples are just like babies. They don't necessarily know what they're doing. And they have bad habits like pooping in their diaper. So that we have to put up with in disciple making for time. Sometimes a long time. My wife's been putting up with me for almost 50 years. Uh, Put up with spiritual immaturity in the process of bringing a person to spiritual maturity. Just like we had to do it with our own children. It's the same same exact thing. Okay. Jesus sent out unqualified disciples. I really like this section from Mark 6, uh, verse 12. It appears in Matthew 2. 
But basically, about halfway through the gospel, so remember, we're a year and a half in, okay? We're a year and a half in, maybe, maybe even less than that. And remember that Peter and all the, they don't really know who Jesus is. They only figure that out after the resurrection. They're still kind of stumbling around. They know he's a great teacher. They know he's, he's got some skills in healing people. Uh, but, but they think any moment now he's going to raise an army and defeat the Romans. It's going to be great. He summons the twelve and he sends them out in pairs, giving them power over dark spirits and tells them, don't take anything. Uh, no satchel, no bread, and no money. Uh, so they went out and they preached that men should repent and change their outlook on life. The GCS down there, by the way, means that's my translation. Now, there's several things in this that we really need to get in our minds. First of all, he sent them in pairs. Maybe you're too scared to share your faith alone. But maybe you have a friend or a spouse that's a Christian. God often sends us out in pairs. You're going to learn this big time later on. But so far as we know, neither Paul nor Barnabas nor Peter ever traveled alone while they were making disciples. Paul's surrounded by people all the time. He's got Titus. He's got Timothy. He's got Silas. He's got Barnabas. He's got all these people that are around him that he is discipling them too. In the case of Barnabas, Barnabas was discipling Paul. Uh, but he's in community, and he has friends. He has support. He has somebody to say, Paul, you know, I really think you might have made a mistake when you assaulted that person today. He has people around him who will say, Paul, uh, I've got your back here. He's got people around him who say, Paul, they're about to kill you. I think you should leave town early, and we'll stay here and do this for a while. Uh, Paul has people around him, and there's nothing wrong with you having people around you while you're making disciples. In fact, I think the Bible teaches us we should do that. We should do that. Every so often, you have to be a lone ranger. I have a friend, by the way, who calls me the paladin of the Presbyterian Church for turning around certain organizations. But basically, the, the cowboy ideal of the Wild West of the one guy that comes into town and shoots everybody and cleans up the town, that's really just true in movies. <laughs> it's really not true in life. In life, it takes community to change communities. <laughs> in real life, it takes community to change people. And so there really are very few Lone Rangers. And honestly, I don't think any of us, myself included, should pattern themselves after any Lone Ranger. If, if God makes you for a time a Lone Ranger because of a certain mission that you have to be involved in, that's great. Uh, but ordinarily, he's not going to do that. He does send single individuals to strange places, African places. Now, the second thing is, he gives them power. Now, here is a great truth. You don't get the power until you take the step. I want you to repeat that. Can we all say that together? You don't get the power till you get the step. So if you're sitting there thinking, I'm willing to make disciples as soon as I get the same power that Paul has, you're making a mistake. You will get the power when you take the step. For years, I wanted to go to seminary. The door didn't open until I took a step. And then miraculously enough, the moment I took a step out of the practice of law to go to seminary, God met all my needs. 
But he wasn't about to say, okay, Chris, here's $100 million. Would you like to go to seminary now? That wasn't the way it worked. And the same thing is often true about other skills. You may say, I can't share my faith. Well, just try doing it. Jesus says, I'll give you words when you call before kings. You may say, I can't have a relationship with someone younger than I am. Well, try it, and I'll bet God gives you the power to do it. Or I can't have a relationship with someone older than I am. Try it and see if God gives you the power to do it. Now, normally, power follows commitment. The Holy Spirit. Now, one I really like, and for the ladies in the room, he told them to take nothing except a staff, no satchel, no bread, and no money. The best sermon I ever heard on this pack passage was by a woman pastor who said, I don't go anywhere with my, my purse. <laughs> that is a ridiculous requirement. <laughs> and Jesus knew that that was a ridiculous requirement, by the way. Uh, there's a thing called Jewish hyperbole. The point here is, I will provide for you. Don't rely upon yourself. Whatever it is you need in the process of going, I will supply it for you. I've been in ministry a long time now, uh, and guess what? God has always supplied what I needed. He didn't always supply what I wanted, by the way. He continues to have that bad habit. But he does supply what you need to do the ministry. And that's, don't worry that you're not qualified, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough time. You don't have enough space. Your house isn't big enough. I don't know what your excuse is. God will supply what you need. Now, Jesus had disciples practice. That's We're still on this thing. Notice he practiced. He was coaching them how to go into the world. He's coaching them. Uh, but he then sends them out while he is still present and watching to see if it's okay. Now, uh, this was hard for me as a parent to learn, but I always wanted to send my children out into the world when I knew for a fact that they would never make a mistake and that they would be successful. Well, yeah. well what, that, what that bred was resentful children. Um, basically, we have to understand that we're going to have to release people into the world before they're ready. Just like all of us, I know every mother has been like this, waiting for their child to come in at night. Uh, basically, we have to release people while they're still immature because we all know this, don't we? Your final maturity comes when you're out there all alone and have to start making decisions for yourself, right? So we have to release disciples gradually, but I like to say this, and it's so true, if you can remember this, that we release them, but as the disciple maker, we're always there to be sure they don't fail. We're always there to be sure they don't fail. Failure breeds failure. Success breeds success. And so we want the people we're sharing faith with to be successful, don't we? So we want to be sure we breed success, not failure. That's, that's a very important thing. By the way, it works in churches too. Um, now, he wanted us to rely on God alone. He wants to, one reason to release people is, is the, so that they will learn to rely upon God alone as we have learned to rely upon God alone in our ministry. I wish we could read Acts together, but Paul sends Titus, Timothy, and all these people out by themselves all the time. But you can almost sense in his letters he's the fretful parent. Read Timothy. He's a fretful parent. He's about to die. And he wants to be sure Timothy's going to be okay. 
But he's letting him rely upon God alone. He's out there alone doing ministry. Jesus wanted them to learn to take time to make deep relations and move around and not move around. I didn't read that part of it to you, but he says, stay in one place until God moves you. Stay in one place until God moves you. That's a warning of time. I, I want to tell you, I personally, I think the church has made a great mistake in relying upon evangelists like Billy Graham, as much as I love Billy Graham, to do our work for us. Uh, because by the nature of what Graham does or did, he moved from place to place to place to place. And I've, I quote this all the time. Guess how, what percentage of people one, who came to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade one year later were going to a church? Less than 5%. Less than 5%. If you and your neighbors bring a person to church and have them in your small group, uh, for uh, year after year after year, guess what percentage of those people are going to be in, in Christians 20 years later? 80, 90, big, big number. Kathy and I were in a Sunday school class when we were in our 20s, a very small Sunday school class called the Carpenters. We were building good marriages. And uh, we, the class never had more than 30 or 40 people in it at a time, never. Uh, but, of course, there's a bigger group out there, okay? So maybe there's a hundred former carpenters out there. We had a reunion several years ago in Houston to all get together again. We've had like three divorces in that little group of people over the years. And that tells you something, that that relationship, and we, not only did we meet together, one reason I'm going to give a commercial, we had a... We had a Sunday school class, we had an organization, we had a social committee, we broke up periodically from the big class to small groups and stuff like that, and we were in a relationship such that I talked to one of the leaders of that class day before yesterday for several minutes. Well, my wife talked to him longer. Uh, and we were sharing a problem that exists in a town far, far, far away from here and a referral that he needed from somebody in Texas. That's why he called. That's the power of relationships. If we had just met each other casually, if he just heard me give a sermon, believe me, he wouldn't have called me. Um, but we were in a relationship. We took time. We knew each other for years. And then when it was over... God allowed us to go separate ways. We're spread all over the country now. But we are still close. And I have several small groups like that. Now, uh, some of you all know, Kathy and I wrote this little book called Salt and Light. So I really, this started as an analyze, anal, analyzing what salt and light really is about. Uh, so disciple making is a ministry of being salt and light. It's a ministry of being salt and light for other people. So what are salt and light. Why is, did Jesus use this analogy? If he'd gone to a heart surgeon, he would have said, don't talk about salt. Whatever you do, don't talk about salt. It's bad for you. Salt, it turns out, is necessary for life. I have a propensity to get heat exhaustion because I sweat a lot and I don't drink enough water. But guess what? That's uh, not enough to drink water. You've got to replace the salt that you're sweating out of your body or you're going to have trouble. It's a cleanser. Salt is a cleanser. The, my dentist has me put salt, baking soda, and charcoal uh, in, in my toothpaste because it's a cleanser and disinfectant. 
and it's a flavoring. Light, interestingly enough, has similar characteristics. It cleanses, it cleans, it heals, and it even preserves. So the idea is that we should be a cleansing, a healing, an illuminating presence in the lives of the people we touch. Now, we don't really have to talk a lot to do that, do we? We don't really have to talk a lot to do this. And uh, we just need to be present in the lives of people. So I'm going to give you sort of what I think is another little revelation that came to me late in life. Um, often, we want to share our strengths with people. We want to share our successes with people. And if you go on television this afternoon and you listen to a bunch of TV preachers, that's often what they do. But guess what means the most to people? It's when we share our weaknesses that they have. It's when we share our failures that they have. It's when we let them know that, I know that you're struggling with this in your life, but guess what? I did too, and I failed miserably. Uh, it takes a pretty strong person just to be willing to share their weaknesses. If you've been an alcoholic, somewhere there out there, there's an alcoholic that needs you. If you've had trouble raising your children, believe me, there are a ton, you, could, you could have the largest psychiatric practice in San Antonio by sharing that with people. Uh, if you've had trouble in your business, if you've lost a job, in the book I tell the story, our church in Memphis was lower middle class, middle class church, and so people lost jobs when there were recessions. And we had a man uh, who had been, he'd been in HR when he was in business, about 80 years old. He started this ministry, and basically what they did is they gathered together on Thursday morning, and usually one person who had lost their job and then found a job would give their testimony of what it was like, and then my friend, who had lost several jobs, would give his testimony of what it was like. And people would be empowered by that sharing to be able to withstand what we all know, if any of us have ever been unemployed, is the terrible, particularly for men, the terrible loss of self-image that goes along with being unemployed. So just be present. That's all we do. Okay. Disciple-making, therefore, is a ministry of presence. Just remember, Jesus was present with his disciples physically for three years and he assured them that he was never going to leave them when he died and was going to be present by the power of the Holy Spirit which is what Pentecost and that story is all about that Jesus is still here that by the way there's three parts if you read Acts closely to what they were saying we often forget the last part Jesus died Jesus rose from the dead, and P.S., he's here now. He's still here. Luke begins Acts by saying, In my former book, I told you what Jesus began to do while he was with us in the flesh. That would imply that he's still doing, right? He just began when he was here in the flesh. He's still doing. So, we need to have a relationship with God in Christ. We need to hold that relationship. So many pastors, so many people in ministry, myself included, burn themselves out because they don't maintain that vertical relationship. 
They don't maintain that, and I might add, they are not willing to become emotionally healthy so that they can be vulnerable and admit they're not perfect in public, and therefore uh, be able to grow spiritually. The biggest problem, which I could teach you a class on, a mini-week class, uh, most people who can't become spiritually mature do not do so because they're emotionally immature and they refuse to grow up. There's a fact. Okay, so we're in a relationship with God. We're in a relationship with other Christians. We need a vertical, horizontal relationship with other Christians. If I'm not active in a church or a small group, if I'm not present with other Christians, if I'm not constantly being in community with others, I will find it very difficult to create community. Once again, I'm going to give you a little testimony about Kathy, who's busy today building community in Houston. Happens to be in our family, but it's community. Um, basically, um, I'm introverted and I'm an intellectual, and I, I really enjoy being alone. My wife is not an intellectual. She's an extrovert. At There might be someone more extroverted than Kathy is. I don't want to meet them, but there might be someone. <laughs> And she finds it easy to build community. Now, I don't know what kind of a person you are, okay? But it's okay, whatever you are. If you're extroverted, you will find it easy to build community. If you're introverted, you will find it hard to be in community. But still, be in community. To the extent you're capable of being a friend, be a friend, okay? Not everybody is equally capable. Okay, a relationship with other Christians... And I want to stop and say, I, I quoted this the other night, leaving church, but there's a philosopher named Josiah Royce. He was the last American idealist. Uh, and he wrote a book uh, actually called The Problem of Christianity because uh, he was actually a believer. And Josiah Royce points out in the book that if we think back upon the growth of ourselves, it was those people that criticized us and that did not agree with us that were the most important in helping us to grow, right? Is it true? It's true, isn't it? The minute I read it, I knew it was true. That we, all of us, uh, if somebody says, hey, Chris, you're great. You're the best person in the whole church. You're doing fabulous. We love you. You're great. I'm like, okay, this is great. I don't have to change. When somebody says, I don't like the fact that you don't remember names, I have to think, hmm, maybe I should learn to remember names. Right? Uh, so I want to say that when we're in this vertical relationship, one advantage of it is not everybody in that vertical relationship called the Church of Jesus Christ is going to think we're God. And that's okay. We'll learn more from them than from the ones who think we're God. And we should, therefore, when Jesus says, love our enemies, I would say just appreciate your enemies, too. Your enemies are obviously probably your friends. Uh, and then we get into a relationship with unbelievers and new believers. So there's a tendency to want to stay in the holy huddle. And if you think you're unique in that, believe me, I would love to be in the Friday night Bible study in Houston, Texas, where I was brought to Christ in 1976 with all my best friends even today. I would love it if that had been God's plan for my life. Uh, but guess what? All the people I've touched in three different churches would never have been touched. So if we stay in the holy huddle, we're not going to reach others. So we've got to get out of the holy huddle. Now, as I've said, that may seem hard to you, but it's not hard because you're all going to go to HEB or Central Market 
or Regency Hardware Store or somewhere to the work, to jobs, to your family, all of us to Trinity, we're all going to go somewhere, and when we're there, we're going to meet people who are not Christians. When we're there, we're going to, and we're going to have an opportunity for relationships. Okay, so Jesus, let's take it this way. If, if we find it hard to be involved with other people, then let us remember that Jesus was in a relationship with the Father. Jesus was in a relationship with his disciples, at least one of which he had to say, get behind me, Satan, too. And Jesus was willing to reach out to other people, including people who he shouldn't reach out to. Remember when he called Matthew, it was wrong for a rabbi to be in the home of a sinner and a tax collector. Jesus didn't even talk to him. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, he's not supposed to be talking to a Samaritan. When he finds out she's a prostitute, he's not supposed to be talking to prostitutes. Jesus was constantly willing to talk to people who he wasn't supposed to be talking to and to form a relationship with the people he wasn't supposed to be in relationship with. And so we just have to know if we're going to be like Jesus, in some small way we've got to be willing to do that. And once again, if you think I'm preaching to you, believe me, it's as hard for me as it is for you. I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Uh, so God created us... I, Point this out. We live in an entangled world. You and I are actually in relationship with every single person on this planet. You know, uh, sociologists tell us that on the average, if I want to meet anyone in the world, I only need to have five connections. So if I follow five of my friends, I can have an audience with the Queen of England. Okay? You are in relationship with a whole lot more people than you know. In fact, you're in a relationship with practically everyone. It's figuring out those relationships and letting the power of God's love flow in those relationships that's the key. Okay? All right. So, how do I prepare to make disciples? I told you this week is going to be a movement toward the practical. We're not totally to the practical, but we're moving. First of all, be in a deep relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Take time daily to read your Bible. You don't have to read a lot. I actually recommend one paragraph. I read a lot more than that, and most days I can't remember what I read. Um, read your Bible. Pray daily. Some people have time. If you're retired, you have time to pray for an hour. If you're in business, you might have time to pray for five minutes. But everybody's got time to pray, right? Um, be in a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Take time. Deliberately take time to do this. I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer in basically mergers and acquisitions. I worked 80 hours a week during those years, well, all the time. Uh, my habit, and I had four small children, which meant that my bedroom was really not the right place to have a quiet time. Okay? So I got to the office 15 minutes early, and for years, that was all I had was 15 minutes before the phone started ringing. If that's what you got, use it. If you've got longer, use that. Uh, be in a deep relationship with the Christian community, the church. I'm going to stop and say one reason why I wrote Tom and we, the, the pastors talked to Tom this week. Body life is important. Relationships are important. And creating body life 
is one of the most important things you do in ministry. They don't even teach you that in seminary, by the way. Um, they just let you figure it out on your own. But learning to create community. So one reason to have a social event once in a while in a Sunday school class, one reason to invite people out to lunch once in a while is you're building body life. You're building that loving relationship with Christ inside the body of Christ. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be bringing the kingdom of God to earth, not bringing information about God to earth. Let's repeat that. We're supposed to be bringing the kingdom of God to earth, not information about God to earth. That's, information is just part of it. You can't build a company without a lot of information, right? But that's not all there is to building a company, right? All right. Uh, finally, develop deep relationships with people outside the church. It took me a long time to get to this point, but I will encourage you to do this. If you're in church seven days a week, if you're on every committee in the church, if you're constantly involved in the church, this Bob's going to hate me for saying this, get out of some of those responsibilities because you have no time to be a disciple now. You're just a, a kind of a coordinator for the church. Take time to have relationships and hobbies that are not in the church. Some of you know, when I retired, I learned to play golf. And I don't do this as much as I used to, but I used Kathy doesn't want to play more than once a week, and she doesn't want to walk the course. She wants to have a cart. I want to walk the course, and I don't care about a cart. So I have the habit of going to Almost Basin, which is filled with retired master sergeants from the U.S. military that have retired in this town, and I just play golf with them. And every so often, they'll say, what do you do? And I tell them, oh, I was a lawyer, and I'm a pastor. And then I might get a conversation. I might be able to talk to some of you know the, book, the movie Twelve Days, uh, Seven Days in Utopia. I, I carry copies of that book, give it out to people. Um, it, your hobbies are a way to share your faith. Your hobbies are your way to share your faith. Uh, I had a dear friend, some of you might actually know this person uh, in Houston. He played tennis for Trinity, and he was a very, very fine tennis player. And one day he took me out to lunch and said, Chris, do you think tennis is a spiritual gift? I said, well, No. But I think you could use it as part of a spiritual gift. Well, today, he takes people out to play tennis all the time and shares his faith. That was his art. So, the lost art of going. Here's I want to tell you. This was really surprising to me. In the most famous book on disciple-making in the history of Western civilization, that would be The Cost of Discipleship that my book was taken from, Dietrich Bonhoeffer never once talks about the Great Commission. Never once. He didn't even really like personal evangelism. He didn't like testimonies. All the stuff we're going to talk about he really didn't like. Why? Because he lived in Christian Europe. He lived in Germany. Everybody in Germany was a Christian automatically. You were a member of the state church. You were either a Catholic or a Protestant. You were a Christian. It was automatic. So we don't have to worry about it. People are Christian. That masked for us for a long time the fact that our culture was becoming non-Christian. Okay. That masked for us. For, you know, when I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, there were two kinds of people in Springfield, Missouri. There were Christians and there were 12 Jews. That, that's what we had. Right. I think there's some here from Springfield. Right? Well, today I go to Springfield, there's Buddhists, there's yoga classes, there's Hinduism, there's, there's everything. It's everything. And right there in the heart of the Bible Belt, uh, there's everything. Uh, so... For a long time, we ignored the fact that we don't live in a Christian culture anymore. And so it, the culture is not automatically going to make Christians for us. 
Two, we forgot during Christendom what it meant to go into the non-Christian world. For generations, we thought missions was sending people to far-off countries that were not Christian to convert them. But today, guess what? The largest mission field in the world and the one most resistant to Christianity is the United States of America. We are the largest, and I can tell you from person, and the hardest to minister to. The hardest to minister to. Because people's hearts are connected to this materialistic vision of what it means to find happiness. And they got to break out of that before they can listen to the gospel. Plus, people don't think they're sinners. And you really do have to kind of come to the point of thinking, hey, I might not be perfect. Um, so we have to recover. We ha if you want America to be a Christian nation or to have Christians in it in the next generation, uh, then we must recover the art of going. One of my favorite experiences of life, Kathy, I talk about all the time, is we were able to spend a summer in Scotland. I was preaching in a Scottish church, and they didn't care. They did not care if I was there anything but Sunday morning uh, to preach and Wednesday morning to get the bulletin done. That's all they cared about. So we saw everything. Every town in Scotland used to have maybe six Presbyterian churches, five of which are bars today, or community centers, or libraries. They're closing, and, and the, the National Trust has said, we can't take all these. We can't maintain all these beautiful buildings. <laughs> we don't have the money to do that. Um, the fact is, in Europe and other places which are further along the, the course of secularization than we are, they've pretty much lost the battle. For those of you who don't know, it is not possible that France will not be a Muslim country within the next 20 years. The die has been cast. The population is in place, and one population, the Christian one, is not multiplying, and the other population, the Muslim one, is multiplying rapidly. <laughs> so a little bit of genetics and mathematics tells you the game is lost. England is very close to that. That's one thing we learned when we were there. England is very close to that. And America is increasingly close to that. Okay, not Muslim, just secular. Church attendance, church participation, believers, it's just fallen dramatically, dramatically. And uh, honestly, okay, a final word. So uh, I say this over and over and over and over again. It's one of my little mantras. There's nothing wrong with having great worship services. There's nothing wrong with having great church music, whether you like the contemporary or traditional. There's nothing wrong with great visitation programs like Stephen's ministry. There's nothing wrong with sound biblical teaching. There's nothing wrong with men's ministry or women's ministry, community outreach, foreign missions, renewal events, etc. God, in fact, loves it when we do these things. But if we do these things without making and empowering disciples, we fall short of what God wanted us to do. Or, as I've said before, and we'll say again before this is over, God didn't say, go have worship services. He didn't say, go have a million-dollar organ. He didn't say, go have a praise band. He didn't say, go have a Sunday school class. He didn't say, go have a Stevens ministry. He said, go make disciples. So if we do all those other things, which are not bad things, and we don't do that thing, we fail. We fail. So we can't put all of our attention... By the way, 
Twice in my life I've had to either raise money to pay for an organ or to repair an organ. For those of you who don't know, it can cost half a million dollars to repair an organ. <laughs> that's, that's a big job. Uh, and, and I don't think I made a mistake by doing that. I was a member of a church. I was a deacon and elder. It was needed to be done. I did it. But think of all the time and energy Chris spent on that project and how little time and energy during those years he paid attention to making disciples. Now, that's what I think about. So I think about my ministerial career. I, spent, I was pastor of a pretty big church. I spent a lot of time on committee work. I spent a lot of time on building programs. I spent a lot of time on Sunday school. I spent a lot of time getting ready to preach sermons. I preached a lot of sermons. I spent a lot of time doing all this stuff. But I asked myself in retirement, did you do the most important thing of all? And believe me, I don't feel as good about the answer to that question as I feel about the answer to the question, did you preach enough sermons? I feel pretty good about that answer. I don't feel good about the other one. So that's where we are today. Um, I think this week, like I said, we're shifting. And the point of the week is just this, that we have to place the Great Commission with the law of love right at the center of our lives in some way, whatever way is appropriate to you. So I'll take any questions. Any questions? Come on. Stump the chump, for those of you who listen to car talk. Anybody have a question? Come on. All right. Then let's pray and we'll go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had together this morning. We thank you for this class. We thank you for its leadership. We thank you for this church and for the opportunity you've brought us to be a part of this fellowship. We thank you for the people and friends we make here. Uh, we thank you, O oh Lord, for the long, wonderful tradition of this church uh, and for the countless generations that sacrificed uh, physically and financially and otherwise, to make it the church that it is today. We ask that as we go from this place, uh, that in our day, in our time, in our place, in our culture, uh, we would be willing to do that which is needed to build up the body of Christ. Please be with every family represented here, near and far away, and with their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, uh, that they might all be joined together in that great reunion that we will one day have before your throne of grace. We ask it in Jesus' name.